Love Talk Radio. location uh, appropriate to the Commodore. Where are you, Aaron? I'm walking the docks of Sausalito right now, watching the busy sailor men of the morning prepare their crafts for the mighty ocean. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Uh, oh, doggone it. How, what's the weather like? Torture me for a minute. What's the, what's the weather like in Sausalito this morning? Right now, it's probably at about 62, 63. I'm in shorts, so can't be uh, too cold. Okay. All right. And uh, how much longer are you going to be there in the shadow of the Golden Gate? I will pack up within the hour after we're done. Okay. My my 10 days in a very small area is up. And, you know, I'm glad I made it that long, especially after the pee incident. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Tell us. I, I well, you know what? I love you so much that I wasn't going to bring it up because I I, I, I didn't I, I didn't want to subject you uh, involuntarily to humiliation. But since you have breached the subject, well, it makes, uh, it makes, it makes for subject. good radio, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've learned a lot this okay. this time around. You know, this is probably the sixth time I've stayed on this craft. Yeah, and I finally realized that a gallon. Water jugs or milk jugs are much better to pee in than Aquafina bottles. Make uh, way yeah. less of a mess. <laughs> okay. So I always have my one gallon of water in there and my gallon pee jug. Right. And uh, yeah, last last week I arose from my sleep at three in the morning and thought, I'm thirsty. Uh huh. And so I reached down and got my gallon of water, poured it in the cup, drank from my cup. Someone down my throat and in my throat without me even telling it to stop accepting the flow of liquid. <laughs> my next thought was, that's the wrong temperature. My next thought was, that's the wrong taste. And my final thought was, I'm drinking my urine right now. <laughs> so, yeah, there was some shame. Some shame came up for me. Yeah. Um, but I thought, you know, how cool. How how often in your life do you drink your own urine? That in itself is special. <laughs> so you can knock that off your bucket list. It's been yeah, done it's, now. Yeah. It's it's gone. It's perfect. <laughs> so I made it through, I made it through that and I'm okay. Yeah. It was All sterile. Right. So okay. I had brothers to walk me through it, and that's why this Samson thing is so important. <laughs> 
Yeah, okay. As long as you weren't tempted to do it again the next night, we're probably uh... <laughs> No, starting that night, I put my, my pee jug all the way across the boat so I would be wide awake before being tempted <laughs> to pour it in a glass and drink it. Oh, my. Oh, my. Uh, uh, Mondo's not with us today. He is, uh, I don't know, he's doing something that's highly classified. Probably has something to do with the government shutdown. I don't know what it is. Uh, and Jay as well. For all I know, they're, they're, they're in cahoots and together somewhere. But Newton is here. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. How you Are you back in tip-top shape? Have you recovered yet from the injury, Newton? Uh, as of today... I am wearing matching shoes for the first time in about 10 days. I'm oh, out good. of my walking boots. Um, so your injury oh, like yeah. messed with your whole color coordination and dressing skills? That is a it, weird it injury. Everything. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm out of the walking boot. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it still isn't working quite right, but um, <clears throat> it, it, it hasn't resulted in me drinking my own pee either. So, uh, <laughs> there could be worse things. <laughs> uh, well, you know what? We have another pirate monk joining us today. He will be our guest actually uh, later in the broadcast. But it seems to me very appropriate to bring him in right now since he has some experience. I don't know that he has any experience drinking his own pee, but he has some experience with boats. He's a graduate of the Naval Academy. He's a friend of mine here in Franklin, Tennessee. Hey, uh, John Shearer is with us today. Hey, John. Thanks, Nate. It's great to be here. And uh, along the lines of the seagoing reference a minute ago, I'm on a business trip. I'm currently uh, in the vicinity of Norfolk, Virginia, and Virginia Beach, Virginia, home of the United States Second Fleet and the United States uh, Navy's Master Jet Base at Oceana. But uh, uh, old stopping grounds for me, but uh, but uh, my business is not related to the military. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am pulling for a solution to the government shutdown to a degree. I have a stake in it because as of right now, uh, well, my wife and I are going to the Navy Air Force game in Annapolis this weekend. And as uh, of right now, we're not sure that game is going to be, uh, be held. Oh, my. So when, it's it's you guys, uh, when, it, when it gets down to college football, then you're getting serious, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did, did you guys hear about the World War II vets? that yeah. went to visit the uh, memorial, yeah. and it yeah. was closed down. Yeah. And yeah. so they, like, ripped down the barriers because they were going to go honor their brothers yeah. despite yeah. the government's uh, yeah. deal. Yeah, yeah. How, how yeah. good was that bit of vigilanteism? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I hear that some park park service employees had actually been exempted from furlough so that they could go and, you know, barricade the... Memorial and keep people from going to it. I'm oh, sorry. I'm sorry. That's nasty. That's nasty ball. Yeah. Well, you know what? I'm recruiting all senior citizens to vigilanteism during this time. I just want to put that out there publicly. That's just awesome. Yeah. You know, no, we're on unfamiliar territory. We never, we never go political on this podcast. But uh, oh well. Politics of a bit or like. Look, hey, uh, I, I've got uh, I've got a mail that uh, a letter that's arrived in the mailbag. Why don't we take a quick break, a very quick break? Come right back and hit the mailbag. What do you say? Sounds good. Sounds good. Oh, pirates! Life is a wonderful life, a roving over the sea. Give me a career as a buccaneer. It's the life of a pirate for me. Oh, the life of a pirate for me. 
on the Pirate Monk Podcast, opening up the mailbag. I got a letter in this week uh, that is worthy of a response. Of course, all are worthy of a response, whether we respond to them or not. Um, This one is titled, Dealing with Problematic Group Members. It says, hey, guys, I've got an issue I'm hoping you may be able to uh, to shed some light on. We've got a gentleman who seems to enjoy showing up to our Samson group, but perhaps not for the best reason. His main objective appears to be turning the group into a theological debate session. Whenever anyone brings up topics such as hiding behind their false self or discussing childhood wounds, he becomes quite aggressive and tries to convince everyone that these topics are nothing but secular psychobabble and claims that there are no verses about such nonsense. He keeps telling us that Jesus is all we need. But by that, he seems to be implying that once you find Jesus, your wounds all magically go away, and life should be butterflies and kittens. I don't want to read too much into his responses, but my spirit, as well as my own personal history, leads me to believe that this man has some deep and painful issues that he just isn't ready to deal with. Whenever these topics come up, it pokes him in his wound, which causes him to return to his usual defenses of deflection and distraction. If he moves the topic somewhere else, he won't have to risk his personal wounds being dug up. Granted, this is my own personal speculation. I could be completely wrong. That being said, I want him to feel welcome so we can hopefully help him feel safe enough to deal with these things when he's finally ready. But his current behavior is distracting and tends to derail the safe atmosphere of the group. Very few men feel comfortable enough to open up after he goes off. I've offered to sit down with him one by one for coffee to hear more about his concerns with the subject matter, but he doesn't appear open to that. So, yeah. Any advice? Oh, by the way, guys, there's a P.S. to this to this letter that I'm... I'm sorry, I just have to read. Uh, uh, does He writes, P.S., does Nate prepare his answers to questions ahead of time, or is he always that eloquent? All you <laughs> other guys are obviously winging it, but Nate sounds like friggin' Wordsworth. So what's That's up with that? Answer. You're always that eloquent. <laughs> I don't think you should send your own letters in. <laughs> okay, yeah, and you know, I should deal with you differently, right, Newton? Okay. Yeah. Um <laughs> uh Pastor Aaron, what do you have to say to our friend Steve here? Uh well, as as a theologian, as a pastor <laughs> I think the answer's obvious. The Bible doesn't speak directly to drinking your urine either, but I do it. <laughs> so clearly, uh, well, let's, let's take it somewhere else. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I love his gracious attitude yeah. towards this fella. Yeah, and his desires for him. That's really yeah. good because there is no way to deal with someone if you get off of that gracious uh, plane. Yeah, if you get to the point you're just sick of someone angry with them, well, then you are not the person that gets to have any part in correcting and restoring them. That's, That's just true. the way it is. Yeah. So he, he's in the right spot to deal with this. Um, 
I think it's also great that he's not trying to defend the issue, the idea that Jesus fixes everything. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I so believe that. Yeah. And I believe learning how to walk in that is one of the longest processes that anyone can go through. Yeah. Learning how Jesus is the answer to stuff that was hurt when I was younger. Learning how Jesus is the answer to my marriage right now. All of those things are very practical questions. Yeah. And so I think staying in that theological realm, uh, our friend that wrote the letter is is right. It gives him a great opportunity to avoid the practical implications of what Jesus in his life looks like. The real obvious question is, if it's that simple, why is he still at a Samson meeting? <laughs> is he just there to fix everybody else? Yeah. And if so, he's in the wrong spot. Yeah. So I do think the answer is uh, somebody has to take him aside, uh, maybe a couple brothers, yeah. so that it doesn't sound like it's just one person's issue with him. Yeah. And to, to graciously say, look, this is a time for guys to share out of their experience. And I've been in groups where guys are theologically so off base. But the deal is, this is the process for them to find hope in Christ. Yeah. It's not the process yeah. where we write down our beliefs and then fix it for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Even if he's right. And this is this is for all of us. Their maturity is incremental. Yeah. Even if he's totally right, there was a process by which he came to that information. And what he's doing is expecting that there should be no process for anyone else. They should simply arrive at the conclusions that took him years to come to. Yeah, that is a lack of grace and love on his part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I have found that it's pointless if somebody uh, believes that the that the answer is to be found in theology, uh, and then wants to initiate a theological debate about uh about an issue just entering the debate is uh passing beyond a point of no return cuz nobody ever wins a debate uh the, you know the answer uh, so you really can't give the guy a theological you can't convince the guy on theological terms uh to abandon his cerebral approach to the practical problems in his life and in the lives of other guys um, the only way I think uh, is, you know, it has to be love first. This is a heart thing, not a head thing. Um, if he if he insists on, you know, you just can't engage the you just can't engage the guy on strictly a biblical basis, um, and have you know have a biblical argument. Let's go to the Bible for the answer on this. Um, you've already. You've already given the conversation away. Uh, it's you know we've pretty well proven over two thousand years of Christian history that um, sincere, well-intentioned uh, people can read the Bible differently and come to vastly different conclusions based on the on the same text. Let me let me protect your butt on that statement, Nate. Yeah. When when you're saying we can't go to the Bible and argue this theologically, it's not for lack of verses that you could use to defend the Samson position. Right. Oh, it's sure. For the wa- it's for the waste of time it would be and the ineffectiveness 
to his heart and yours. Sure, I can match him verse for verse. I can match him story for story. Um, yes, maybe it takes um, a little bit of exegetical sophistication um, to, uh, to, to, to pair the issues posed and the solutions proposed by, you know, contemporary, you know, he calls it psychobabble, but, you know, uh, yeah, to, you know, to, to connect the two conversations requires a bit of translation because modern psych, you know, people who are thinking psychologically today are not speaking in biblical terms, but they're talking about the same ideas. They're wrestling with the same principles and the answers are still the same. And to me, you know, uh, that's why my journey in recovery and even in sitting in counseling, uh, engaging in stuff that I dismissed for years as well because I thought I could, you know, I knew I was doing irrational things for non-rational reasons, but I, you know, I thought I could solve it by rational means. And so I spent years in that boat trying to think my way and talk my way past my problems. My experience in recovery and in you know, counseling, opened doors and windows on the gospel that I hadn't seen. And suddenly, connections were made that I, uh, of which I had previously been entirely unaware. So yeah, we could have that conversation, but it wouldn't go anywhere if our starting place was I had to argue him into my position. You know, I reached my present position because, first of all, I was in desperate need. And secondly, um... You know, I found myself within the embrace of very gracious people who wouldn't argue with me. They would just love me. All right. And I think your charter has been carefully written to protect this, and that's really the most basic answer. Yeah. That he needs to be pulled aside and say, okay, look, we read this every time that says we, we keep our comments to ourselves and we reserve them for a later time. So if you want to discuss these things, we can do it at the meeting after the meeting. But we need to stay with the program here. We yeah. we have this read for a reason. And yeah, that's yeah. supposed to protect the safe space. Right. Well oh, that's a that's a good point. Rather than shutting them down completely, say, you know, this is this conversation is appropriate to the meeting after the meeting. Yeah. That was the first thing that I thought is I mean, it almost sounds like crosstalk and that's not something we do in meetings. Yeah. Um, so I think just on, on that, I think it is worthy of a conversation to say, look, the format works this way and you're not really following that. If you've got something to say, you know, it's, it's best reserved for private moments between friends. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good. Um, by the way, a completely unrelated topic. Um, I, I had the the great uh, uh, privilege of visiting the Denver Samson Society meeting a few days ago. I was there for their Friday night meeting. I guess that was five days ago. And uh, what a privilege it was to sit with those guys. Uh, a great meeting. Here, It's a small group, but these fellows have been journeying together for a good long while. Uh, and then a terrific time at an Italian place, the meeting after the meeting. Um what a what a what a joy, and got to I got to connect with an old friend here from the Franklin Group. Pete Warren was there. He's recently relocated to Denver, and to see how he came into a new city, 
and found brothers right away. He, you know, connected up with the Samson Society, and he's got solid support there. What a what a cool thing. Also got to spend uh, good quality time with the uh, Youth for Christ folks at the national headquarters there in Denver, uh, talking about ways they can better approach uh, the kids they serve, specifically around uh, sexual issues. And we wound up talking a lot about making the groups, making sure the groups are safe enough and there's a safe place within their groups for people to talk honestly about the struggles they're having, especially kids in leadership. So that was fruitful. And then got to spend uh, a couple of nights with the good folks at Grace Reformed Church in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. Dynamite group of guys uh, and a, a, a church that's fully committed to relationship rather than building a massive program. And uh, I, I hope they were half as encouraged as I was by my time there because it was tremendous. It was my first time out of town since Allie's diagnosis, cancer diagnosis, back in May. Uh, we both had a lot of anxiety around uh, a five-day absence. And Allie did have some challenges while I was gone, but she was not alone. We have good friends here, and she weathered the time. And So... Uh, I'm sorry, guys, I meant to give you that update at the top of the show, and it uh, just popped in my mind. Uh, you guys shared, and I didn't, so that's where I was last that's week. all right. Okay. So do you have any more mail, Mr. Mailman? I have. Uh, you know what? I haven't dug into the depths of the mailbag. Uh, if there's anything else, I think we'll save it for a subsequent show. How about a super quick mini-meeting before we bring our guest on? Would that work? Sure. sure. And shall we bring our guest into this meeting? I- I, I think we should. Yeah, John, will you join the meeting? I'd be happy to. Okay. All right. We'll do it in just a second. Uh, we'll be back in a moment here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. There are times when I start to question why. Is it really worth it? Should I even try? back. Oh, boy, I miss Mondo. That was not a very expert fade right there. (laughs) (laughs) That was was our friend Matt Creamer, and I just cut him right off, just like that. (laughs) Oh, well. Well, I know we're pressed for time, so I'm going to jump quickly into, uh, unless somebody else, anybody else have a meeting format on them? Anybody else want to run this thing? Okay, then I'm going to do it. Here we are. Welcome to this (laughs) Welcome to this mini-meeting, mini-meeting, mini-meeting of the Samson Society. We're a company of Christian men. By the way, we're also natural loners who've recognized the dangers of isolation and are determined to escape them. We're natural wanderers who are finding spiritual peace and prosperity at home. 
We're natural liars who are now finding freedom in the truth. Natural judges who are learning how to judge ourselves are right. And we're natural strong men who are experiencing God's strength as we admit our weaknesses. As Christians, we meet at other times for uh, worship, for teaching, or for corporate prayer. Today, however, we meet to talk. Our purpose is to assist one another in our common journey. We do so by sharing honestly out of our own personal experience the challenges and encouragements of daily Christian living in a fallen world. Okay, we've now reached the sharing portion of our meeting. Uh, and for the special benefit of our friends referred to in the, uh, in the foregoing section, here are the rules for sharing. Uh, in sharing, we speak honestly out of our own experience. We tell the truth about ourselves, knowing that our brothers will listen to us in love and will hold whatever we say in strictest confidence. Strictest confidence. Uh, we try to keep our comments brief, taking care to leave plenty of time for others. Uh, we address our statements to the group as a whole rather than directing them toward any one person. And as a rule, we refrain from giving advice to others or instructing them during the meeting believing that such conversations are best reserved for private moments between friends. Our uh, suggested topic for today is, drumroll please, ah, control. But we're not confined to that subject. You may speak about any issue that is currently commanding your attention. The uh, floor is now open. Well, I'm Aaron. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Aaron. Hi, Aaron. I feel like we, we talk about control all the time, and I don't see why you picked that. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick a new topic. <laughs> <laughs> Have we picked control before in the mini-meeting? I don't remember. I think I just bring everything back to control. There you go. For me. Yeah. Good, good. <laughs> so, Thanks for controlling. Uh, yeah. Now, uh, it's interesting because we've had some some more financial stuff come up recently, and that immediately puts me in the weird position of what's the difference between being responsible and inappropriately controlling as I look for more extra work and ways to make ends meet. And uh, I feel like every time I've learned something about letting go and not controlling in one area of life, there's just other areas that immediately pop up so that I get the chance to grow up. So right now it's back in that that area and uh it's always tricky for me. It's been hard to be away trying to get some work done to make ends meet while at the same time knowing that uh things at home are stressful because ends are not meeting. So I think control to me is just that uh that ongoing song in my life that keeps replaying. Mm. And so I must not I, I must not have arrived yet. That's what I think. But I really want to be good at it because I think God has made me a certain way. And so I do want to be responsible with that and push when I'm called to push. But I don't want to just push everything because I think I can. That's mm. where the control comes in for me. Mm the type of person that if a hammer works for one job, it works for every job. Mm. So just smash the damn thing down. And uh, that's just not the way we trust 
the spirit. So that's the flip side. Yet again, trying to wait on the Lord and listen for the spirit so I can follow. And that's all I got on this. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron. I'm Newton. Hey, Newton. Uh, and this weekend I had the, the opportunity to visit my uh, 99-year-old grandmother uh, at her house in, in deep east Texas and was was made painfully aware um, of of how little I get to control certain things like um, her aging. Um, I don't see her all that frequently, and so it seems like when she when I see her, she just ages in chunks. Um, mm-hmm. You know, not not in small bits, but just in these big jumps. Um, and that was that was really hard. That's really hard for me. Um, you know, it was hard leaving Monday and thinking, I hope this isn't the last time I get to come home to visit. Um, and so that was that was really hard just thinking about that, that lack of control for me that I don't get to decide how many more times I get to see her and, and things like that. Um, but we had a conversation, my, my grandmother and my wife and I, um, uh, around... Um, she needing help, like she's got some caretakers that stay with her. And uh, I said something about um, when I had hurt my ankle that I don't do well being taken care of. And she said, uh, she said, well, that's because you always want to be in control. Mm. And I thought that was a, <laughs> that's really good insight <laughs> uh, in at, at a spiritual level that I have a hard time asking for help and accepting help and admitting that I have a problem because I want to be in control. Mm-hmm. I want to decide the terms um, on which the help is given. Yeah. Uh, I want to decide how long it lasts and what it looks like. And by saying I can't do it or by saying I need help, I give up that control. Um, and so she was she was very right. She was talking about me being laid up in bed with a, a busted ankle that she was also unknowingly speaking to a spiritual condition that I have. Um, and so that's, that's what I think of when I, when I think of control uh, right now is that I need to learn to give some up and be okay with that uh, because I, I can't do everything myself. So um, that's it. I'm Newton. Thanks, Newton. Thanks, Newton. I'm John. Hey John. Hey John. Hey John. Uh, I used to think I was in control, and uh, I still catch myself thinking I'm in control at times. And uh, as a so-called sales professional, I'm supposed to be in control of uh, events and uh, business opportunities. Even last week at a sales meeting, there were one or two. The, the, general theme that was conveyed occasionally and the comments made by a couple of people were how hard they strive to maintain control of a deal or of, a, of the progress of a deal and um, I just have found the hard way that, that it just, I just I'm not in control. I mean it's, it truly is God that dictates the hearts and minds of men and women and uh you know, I can obey and I can keep taking a step forward, but my goodness, I, I just am um, 
continually reminded by my wife and others that I am t- attempting to take control too often. And, uh, and then the events just uh, invariably take place where God reminds me that I'm just really not in control. I, I just can't control. I, I look at my father, who is uh, slowly dying at this point. Uh, uh, another family member, one of my wife's family members, a close cousin, passed away early. And you know, just watching the aging process. Um, and uh, this, it's just a constant reminder that, we just don't have the kind of control that we think we do in our Western culture. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Thanks, John. Uh, well, I'm Nate. Hey, Nate. Um, Hi. Yeah, you know, I, uh, you know, the first step in the in the twelve steps you know, involves an admission that I'm powerless over something and that my life has become unmanageable. Uh, And I suppose that, I mean, that's a very, very, very difficult step to take. I found it hard to take. Uh, It took me a long time to take that first step when I first got into recovery because um, I really thought that I just needed more management training. Uh, I I just needed to sharpen my skills. There were some things I didn't know. Uh, that if I worked smarter, worked harder, that I could get my life back in control. Um, I also, one of the things that, that was uh, I've slowly become aware of is that I have this tendency to control, this need to control, uh, which because I don't like to be controlled and because I, I have an aversion to controlling people, um, I, my, I tend to exert control or try to exert control in a surreptitious way that's that I that I'm not even fully aware of. Uh, there's a memory that's come back to me several times recently about a time when I was in high school and uh, made the long trip from our school to a neighboring county for a meeting of the Tri County Student Council. I was uh, representing our school as the president of our student council, and so there was this kind of this. You know, very very small time UN of federated student councils, which somehow I managed to get uh, elected president of. Um, I thought by acclamation, and uh, we ran this meeting, and everything went. I thought it, I thought the meeting went beautifully, and so we're on we're on the way home, and uh, we're being driven by the faculty by the advisor, the faculty advisor, the high school advisor. And we're about halfway home, and he turns to me and he says, Nate, well, are you, are you happy with yourself? And I went, but, but I'm happy with myself? He said, well, uh, you managed to ram everything through you wanted done. How do you feel about that? And I was flummoxed. I, I was absolutely – I thought I was falsely accused. I said, what do you mean? I mean, we just – and uh, he was aware of the fact, even though I was not consciously aware of the fact that I ran that meeting and just bulldozed people um, and convincing myself all along that um, that I was not in control. I was not being controlling. Uh, I believe now that, um, that uh, I can have either control or I can have influence. 
if I try to exert, the more control I, I try to exert, the less influence I actually have. Um, and, and in the end, I would rather be able to have influence uh, and cede control to God and to God's you know, sovereign ability to bring things to pass through the agency of anyone he chooses. Uh, to the uh, so anyway, um, Ali and I now uh, you, you guys may get tired of hearing this, but you know we're in the we're in the middle of this uh, cancer fight, and uh, you know I'm my, Ali and I are together wrestling with these same issues, uh, realizing that while we do have influence, for example, over our health, we do not have control, and in the end. Um, we have to maintain a posture, ultimately a posture of acceptance and gratitude and trust in a loving God, uh, which is all easy to do when uh, everything's going the way you want it to. But when it's going in a direction that 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 feels terrifying, uh, when you're afraid, when the future's unknown, and you want to be able to stack the cards in your favor and make sure the story ends the way it should. Um, you know that kind of trust becomes much more difficult. Frankly, we're in that we're in that place now. We, uh, Ali and I, find ourselves in moments of great uh, trust and confidence and gratitude. Uh, you know, in the afternoon, <laughs> and then in the evening, you know, this wave of fear and uh, panic and this rising urge to try to do something to control it uh, comes at us again. That's very much a spiritual thing. Uh, we recognize at our better moments that we're being strengthened by this experience, that this is good, that this is making us into better people. It's certainly drawing us closer to one another and making us, uh, I believe, more fit for kingdom use. But it's it's not a process that's pleasant. I would prefer uh, just to handle the steering wheel myself, control things, take it the, play, uh, the direction I want it to go. Although, you know, I know that only God sees the future. Uh, his intentions are all good. His ability to bring about the good is uh, infinite. Uh, he will have his way. Uh, it'll be good. But man, in the meantime, it can be terrifying. All right, that's me. I'm done. Thanks, Nate. Thanks, Okay. Nate. We'll be back in just a moment with our with our guest, uh, and I've been looking forward to this. I know our listeners are going to enjoy it. We'll be back in just a moment with uh, with John Shearer here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Oh, a pirate's life is a wonderful life, a roving over the sea. Give me a career as a buccaneer, it's the life of a pirate for me. Oh, I miss Mondo. He wouldn't have played the same bumper music twice in one show. <laughs> uh, well, John Schur is with us. John has uh, the distinction of being a guest who hasn't written a book, uh, hasn't recorded an album, uh, doesn't have a website selling anything, uh, but he has got a story. He's a good friend. John and I have been walking together for some years. 
Um, and it's a story, John's story. By the way, I did not, I, I did not uh, twist his arm to do this. He's been talking for some time about the way he puts it, sharing his junk with other guys. Has been doing so courageously and carefully for quite a while. And when I suggested that the kind of stuff he's sharing and his experience, as common as it is, might be good for uh, this podcast audience, uh, John was 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 quick. Of course, he went and cleared it with his wife, but he was quick to uh, to go ahead and do it. John, welcome. John Sure, welcome to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Thank you, Nate. Thanks, guys. It's it's great to be here. Uh, you want me just to start to go into my story, Nate? Is that the process? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Let me, let, let, yeah, let me let me set it up. You know, you and I, uh, right. you and I. Um, Started meeting for lunch uh, occasionally several years ago, long before yeah. it really disclosed the, uh, you know, the darker parts of your story. Um, and we had some nice conversations. Uh, I knew you then as uh, uh, a solid Christian guy. I still regard you as a solid Christian guy. Uh, hard worker, a high performer very committed to the church, a very committed Christian, committed to his family, loved his wife. Um, and I had no reason really to suspect uh, that you might be uh, in a fight. And the nature of your fight, turns out, was not something that would cause the normal person any great concern. So uh, let's let's start. Uh, you didn't grow up in a Christian home, did you, John? Uh, so, yeah, actually, I sort of did. My parents, we went to church every week, and so the environment was one that was and was part of the youth group and so forth. And uh, so it was a, an environment that I think was relatively easy for God to use to bring me to faith. Um, I went through catechism. I think the time that I really look back on as having made a, a strong, conscious decision to come to faith and uh, put my life in the hands of Christ would have been my sophomore year at the Naval Academy, the, the September, fairly early in my sophomore year in college. Yeah. Okay. And uh, that was uh, that was kind of so here. So you you grew up in a church family, um, and you grew up in an environment of faith with which you identified, but something shifted when you were at the Naval Academy. Uh, a deeper experience? How, how did that affect you? How did it affect your thinking about life and career? Where did that take you? Well, really, uh, it, it uh, started giving me more of a serious, uh, a more sober view of uh, what God's call in my life might be. And, you know, I, I think like everybody at that point in time at a school like the Naval Academy or any of the service academies, uh, during your first two years, you, it's probably a good idea to to look at your commitment soberly and determine if God really wants you to stay in the military or at least to start your adult career in the military. Uh, because at the beginning of your third year, the, at the, when class once your first class begins your junior year, you are committed. And mm -hmm. uh, you, at that time, you're committed for five years after graduation. For me, I went through flight school, so it was a, an extra year or two beyond that. And nowadays, the commitment's actually a little bit greater. I think it's still a basic five-year commitment, but then if you go through flight school or nuclear power school or something else like that, 
you uh, incur a greater commitment that can be as long as 10 or 11 years for mm. initial commitment. <clears throat> and this was during the late 70s, uh, mid to late 70s. And there was a lot of turmoil. Of course, uh, in, I was at school during the early 70s when the peak of the anti-war movement uh, was taking place, and it was not a popular thing to be in the military. It was also at a time when the Naval Academy was still all-male. I graduated two or three years before the first class of females entered. And so culturally, it was uh, probably a little bit different than it is today. Maybe not too much, but a little bit different. Um, I'm constantly amazed when I have a chance to be on a college campus and I look at some of the co-eds, I'm thinking, wow, that that truly was uh, (laughs) an environment that, that was different than what I was exposed to in college. Yeah, yeah. And, and therein lies really where that I think my weak list. I, I think uh, growing up, um, uh, the influence, the Christian influence that I had growing up was one still, uh, my, my father as a believer um, was still very much into the, um, oh, management uh, styles, uh, self-help deal, the, uh, the fact that you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, uh, it goes yeah. back to the controlling subject that we were talking about a few minutes ago that you know, I just always felt like I still had control over my behavior, over my attitudes, and uh, I, I just didn't, uh, uh, and that allowed me to, I think, cover up some secret sins. Yeah, yeah. Well, you were at a you know you were a high performer at a at a very demanding institution, um, where discipline is the order of the day, where self discipline is a high value. There was uh, a little bit of machismo going on, would you say, at the at the Naval Academy? A lot of testosterone flowing around. Yeah, right. What what did failure even feel like to you? I mean, to have even got into the academy and been on this track you probably hadn't experienced a lot of, quote, failure in your life, I would guess. Not a great deal. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I was always fairly strong academically. I was, you know, never the uh, top of the class, but uh, I'm not, I wasn't really a varsity athlete in high school, but I was probably an above-average intramural type athlete and always did well in scouts and uh, spent a year in junior achievement in high school and, uh, won a sales award that earned a trip to the national conference, national junior achievement conference, and mm. and always was had high expectations. My parents, my dad in particular, always uh, he had been through college, was a navy pilot, uh, was working in the space program. So I literally grew up in the space program. Went to high school outside Houston, literally living across the street from the manned spacecraft center. So everyone that we lived around was all these engineers and scientists and um, former military people who their one goal in life was to put man on the moon in the late 60s. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, knowing knowing people who worked at high levels of NASA, knowing astronauts and w- wanting to aspire to achieve those type of, of uh, having those aspirations, achieving those kind, kinds of goals was very real to me. And anything short would be deemed as falling short and um, and not cutting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
you met a great girl, a uh, Texas girl. When did when did you meet Linda? Actually, met Linda when I was in flight training. I was in advanced uh, jet flight training in Beeville, Texas, which is about halfway between Corpus Christi and uh, uh, San Antonio. And she was living in Corpus Christi. And there was a church that uh, all the Christian guys coming out of the Naval Academy going through flight training, there was a church in Corpus that a lot of the guys would all go to, and she was going. And uh, so I met, that's where I met Linda, and we got married after I completed flight training and uh, yeah. lived in Texas for a while and lived in Virginia. And when I left the service, moved back to uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area where, uh, just where I sought employment. We were kind of tied into a church group at the time that was um, pretty controlling as well. Yeah. Another subject, but uh, uh, but yet there was some fruit that came out of Bel Air as well. Yeah, yeah. But you were in a, I mean, you you weren't in a church for sissies, you know, a church where you, uh, you know, you showed up on Sunday and that was it, and, it, you know, it wasn't men's Correct. pancake breakfasts, uh these, these were a bunch of very, very, very serious folks, and if you were in with them, you were all in, right? For those who might be familiar with, uh, we happen to be Presbyterian now, but for those who happen to might be who might be familiar with the Charismatic movement, for a few years, for several years, we were part of what is referred to as the Shepherding movement or the Discipleship movement, yeah. where there was a lot of, of accountability and a lot of expectations. You know, once again, I jumped from my father's background of requiring or expecting, uh, having high expectations, going to the Naval Academy and the military where the expectations were very high, and then going into the shepherding environment, environment where, again, from a Christian perspective, the expectations were very high. Uh, a um, tremendous amount of, uh, of, of uh, priority was placed on performance. And it, was a, yeah. it really became a performance-based form of Christianity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh I got to tell you, you uh you worked hard. Uh you looked good. Um you you, you were doing the deal, man. Uh you went into uh civilian aircraft sales and excelled there. Uh, I had the privilege of uh, selling corporate jets and uh again dealing with you know, high-level executives who can afford to buy these airplanes and corporations and dealing with uh, either high-net-worth individuals or Fortune 100 companies. And, again, just uh, around a group of sales professionals who are high achievers as well as uh, customers who are probably make up the upper 1%, maybe even the upper one-tenth of 1% of our society. And... You get to be around, you spend some time around there for a while, and you begin to think it's normal, and it really yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> now, uh, in these organizations, uh, John, though you you were the Christian guy, right? Christian uh, guy, and, uh, you know, I can have fun with the guys and uh, and get down and dirty a little bit. But yeah, I was a Christian guy. I was a straight arrow. And I never really, uh, you know, they, among sales folks, and when you go back to the home office, you've got these administrative assistants, and, you know, there's always some um, jocular stuff going on. There's always uh, some teasing and uh, uh, flirting and so forth. But I was still the straight arrow. I was the one that controlled the alcohol consumption. Uh, I was the one that never uh, played games, uh, never fooled around with any of the uh, 
the ladies at the home office, uh, never fooled around on the road. So I was sort of perceived as a uh, good guy to be, a fun, I think a fun guy to be around, but still a straight arrow. But you're the guy who wouldn't go uh, with the boys to the strip club, right? Correct, correct. I yeah. mean, actually, <laughs> my boss took me to the strip club once with, and uh, realized it was a huge mistake. I was just not comfortable there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, John, you know, I've got this story. You you started out, grew up with uh, in the space program. Then you're in flight school in your leather jacket, riding your helmet helmetless body across the <laughs> base and playing volleyball without your shirts on with Goose and Iceman. And then you get married. And so why did you, Mr. Perfect, ever go to a Samson meeting? I just don't understand. Yeah. Well, I did have a I did have a secret sin, and uh, uh, in fact, this when Nate and I used to meet uh, in their oh shortly after he moved to Franklin, and we get together occasionally, and I would sort of allude to the fact that I struggled with lust, and there are some things in my life that goes back to even I think uh, as a young before I was a teenager, uh, uh, I did have a an issue where I was molested by an uncle. Uh, and at the same time, the, the company that my father worked for had a membership to the Playboy Club in the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s. That was a big deal. You take the, your customers with your wife and uh, you entertain them all at the uh, Playboy Club. And uh, with that came a membership to play the uh, subscription to Playboy magazines. And I was at that right age. It's interesting. My younger brother and my younger sister don't remember that, have no memory of it. But I was probably in 11, 12-year-old age, and that was just the right time to hit me with mm. these images of women. And yeah. so I was able to control. I was able to keep myself under control as far as going out and doing stupid things, silly things with the girls. But I still lusted. And so I would, um, that would manifest itself by sneaking playboys into the house when I was a teenager, uh, masturbation, uh, never felt like it was having an effect on my relationships because all, the, all I was doing was dating some girls on a rather superficial level. I knew I didn't want to get married till after I was out of college because I didn't want anything to interfere with my, with my goals at that time. And as it progressed over the years, uh, it was probably the late 90s or the early 2000s, as, um, when all of a sudden, one, and I don't remember the exact day, but I discovered that you could actually get to some images with just a click of a mouse. Mm. And all of a sudden now, it uh, became very easy to, uh, to entertain my fantasies, uh, to have my secret relationships, uh, to uh, to uh, medicate myself with images of women on the internet, and you know what's interesting? The thing I and I've had this conversation with Nate over and over again that it it was never really raunchy stuff. It was still sort of the Playboy image of the girl next door, yeah. and. Uh, and, and I uh, I deceived myself into thinking that it was okay because it was in secret. Uh, I would do it a lot on my company's computer. It was the only computer I had, but our company had a virtual private network, and I was never on the VPN. 
when I was doing this kind of stuff. So I figured, well, you know, I'm safe. I'm not on the BPN. Um, everything's uh, everything's okay. Didn't I? I just under grossly, grossly underestimated the impact that it was having emotionally, the impact that it was having on my relationship with my wife, as it was. Uh, it was not. It was uh, retarding my ability to be real with her, to be uh, affectionate, and to be uh, the loving husband that she would expect. To giving giving her the, the emotional time, the attention that she deserved, and um, it was probably gradually getting worse. I think uh, had I not encountered a, a serious wake up call, I've no doubt that it would have eventually worsened into uh, some deeper porn, uh, raunchier porn. And I would probably, I would assume that I would have eventually then uh, gone, acted on a lot of what I was uh, thinking. Mm. So what was the wake-up call, John? The wake-up call was uh, uh, March 18th, uh, 2009. I'm in my office mid-morning. And I might have actually, I can't remember at that specific time if I was actually uh, on a uh, an inappropriate site. But apparently, back at the home office, an IT person was doing some probably routine upgrades and probably was at some, must have, I, I just was told this after the fact, was uh, privy to what I was doing at that moment on the computer, or at least privy to what I had been doing. But mid-morning, uh, Wednesday, uh, March 18th, I get a call from an HR person with the company I was working for. And I could tell by the tone of his voice, and as he started getting into the conversation, I was caught. I'd been busted. And he asked me to pack up the computer, send it in, and ordered that me not to alter it in any way. Uh, same with my BlackBerry, and that my uh, disposition with the company, my, my employment with the company was under consideration, was under evaluation. And uh, it took about a week. Uh, there were other, I, 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 the process was um, excruciating. I felt like a dead man walking. Um, Shane, uh, the, um, or the other, the embarrassment, uh, despair. Uh, I didn't share it immediately with my wife. The first phone call I made was to Nate and to one of our pastors, one of my pastors. Uh, there were two pastors at the time. One happened to be out, uh, out of the country on a mission trip, our senior pastor, and I called an associate pastor. I got together with Nate and uh, just confessed to him that, okay, all the junk we used to talk about, it's real. It's it's serious, and, and now uh, you know. Here's a wake up call. I need to start getting serious about this, or uh, I'm I'm just going to lose everything. Yeah. And the um, the following Thursday, it was the 25th of March, 2009. I was called into the home office, and I thought I was going to be given an opportunity to ask for my job. I was I was I was given an opportunity to make a statement at least and before our senior VP of sales. And I had written a letter to them anyway apologizing and laying out a plan by which I would try to uh, regain control. Um, 
I, I confess that it was an addiction. Yeah, I don't know if it really was or not, but I certainly treated it like an addiction. I, I believe it was. And um, the uh, uh, as I sat down in my statement, I, I wanted to get around to asking what it was that I could do to save my job. Before I got to that point, the guy just stood up and said, you got a problem. You know, deal with it. You're out of here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that uh, compounded the shame. Uh, they certainly, they uh, fortunately, they gave me a severance package. Um, but uh, I drove home. Uh, the, it was about a two-day My headquarters were in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, drove home that afternoon, spent the night uh, on the way, and I didn't. I was uh, getting ready to share it with my wife when I got home. Uh, as it turns out, about 15, 20 minutes before I got home, the news was spread to the rest of the company that I was leaving the company on my own. And one of the other salesmen, a friend of mine, called the house and left a voicemail saying he was sorry to see me leave the company. And that was how my wife found out that I was, uh, that I no longer had a job. And that was, again, about 15 or 20 minutes before I actually got to the house. She was very sympathetic. You know, the the economy had turned down significantly, so it wasn't a surprise when people had lost jobs. There were a lot of reductions in force taking place. Uh, She embraced me. She, uh, She said, we'll get through this together. And as I was standing there, I said, well, honey, there's something else I need to share with you. Here's why I lost my job. And um, I shared it with her, and uh, she was crushed. She was devastated. She uh, uh, reacted as though I had an affair. I had betrayed her. I had betrayed her trust. Uh, while it wasn't, you might say, it wasn't a physical betrayal, it was certainly a, an emotional betrayal, and it really was physical because I think when you know, having um, spent most, so much time uh, looking at pictures of other women and masturbating, that there's a physical element to it, and uh, obviously mostly an emotional element. But as far as she was concerned, um, you know, it was as if I had an affair uh, or multiple affairs. Mm-hmm. And that was when we started work to patch things up, put things, put our lives back together. And it's been an an ongoing ongoing process since then. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, you guys faced all kinds of challenges after that. Extended period of unemployment, financial challenges, and uh, that awkwardness and tension and pain between the two of you. Uh, Looking back on it now, would you say things are better or worse or the same? Things are actually better. Mm. And... But but it didn't come without a lot of work. You know, I, I was um, <laughs> the, the comments, the, the discussion at the at the outset of the show with the gentleman in this other Samson meeting who um, feels like theology can cure all our ills. I, I I think I learned for the first time what it really means to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, mm. and to take the sanctification process more seriously. And to realize that while I might have the right theology, and certainly no one could would question the relationship I have with with uh, the Lord, uh, I learned more about grace. I learned more about forgiveness. I learned more about the process. Uh, when mm. I sat down with 
Nate was the one I sat down with, and uh, I'll never forget, Nate, you told me that uh, if I followed your process, if I did everything you told me to do, the first six to eight months, next or the following six to eight months would be hell, and that uh, a year from then, my marriage, though, would be good, and two years on, my marriage could be great. As it turns out, the the sucky portion of it was about four months, three to four months. Mm. And my wife, I think, started dealing with some issues that she hadn't faced in her own life. Mm. Um, but uh, in that process, I think, uh, looking back, it was about a three to four month period where things really start. Uh, it was about eight or nine, actually maybe six, six to seven months where things got to be pretty good. And well within a year, I'd say things were great. But mm. it was a concerted effort by both of us uh, seeking some counseling, getting some help from friends, and working it out. Uh, during the course of that time, uh, I had to share my junk, as I call it, with my children. I have four children, four grown children. That At the time, the youngest was, um, gosh, I guess about uh, 19 or so. Um, two boys, two girls, boy, girl, boy, girl, and uh, had to share it with my youngest son first. He was coming home from college uh, Memorial Day weekend, and at that point, I still, I was still was not sleeping in the same room with my wife, and so we, I, we realized I needed to share some stuff with him because uh, he would see a difference. He'd see some, the things weren't normal. And then over the course of that summer, I had a chance to sit down one-on-one with each of my children and share what had happened. But by that time, each of my kids, particularly my oldest two, had already seen a difference in me. And yeah. they were already seeing a difference in the relationship that I had with my wife. Hmm. So I look back on that. My wife will tell you very quickly that it was the best thing that ever happened to her. Hmm. On one level, I agree. Now, there is still enough of, of a controlling nature in me. There's still enough of the shame. That I still think about the career, and, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, you know, that really was the best thing that ever happened to me, but, oh, boy, it sure was a price. Uh, but yeah. internally and relationally, it truly was the best thing that ever happened to me. It was a hard lesson to learn that it's not about me. Mm. John, we're running low on time, but I, I think there's an important question. Uh, you seem to have spent a lot of time in the meeting before 2009 when the wheels came off, kind of marginalizing, I'm not looking at the raunchy stuff, maybe I'm not doing it quite as often as other guys. Were you comparing the level of your junk to other guys you were seeing and justifying why you didn't need to face it head on? And how long absolutely. did that go on if you did? Okay. Oh, absolutely. And I would say that that went on my entire adult life. You know, because I, 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 cause I never, um, you know, even while dating and when I was at the Naval Academy, the other guys would be talking about the girls and all their exploits and uh, taking advantage of them, do this or that. And, and I, I always compared myself. I, I was a nice guy. I was a good guy. I was a, a polite, uh, a gentleman. 
officer and a gentleman by act of Congress, as we used to say. And uh, I was a good husband. I uh, didn't uh, uh, go out and uh, have affairs. And, yes, I, I, I very strongly, very vividly remember comparing my sin to others and thinking that it wasn't as bad and, and being totally blind to what it was doing emotionally to the relationship with my wife. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I very, very distinctly remember comparing myself to other guys. I'm not as bad as that guy. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, that, that guy goes out and gets drunk and and uh, uh, goes to strip clubs and does this and does that. I'm not as bad as him. I, my, mine's in secret. Mine's just by myself. It's a secret of a. It's it's the privacy of a hotel room or whatever. You know, no no big deal there. Uh, and I was. Uh, oh, I I I can't begin to explain how wrong I was. Hmm. And and yet you still knew something was wrong enough or broken enough that you were seeking out the companionship of other broken men. Yes. Yes. I, I admired Nate's testimony and and others like him, others that I knew. And in the back of my mind I kept thinking, yeah, but I'm not that bad. Yeah, I'm not quite that bad. I'm not there. I'm not there yet. Never will get there. And that's a lie. Just a bold faced lie to myself. Mm. So Nate Nate, what's the what's the takeaway here for guys that are in meetings that are maybe living in John's story where if we were to rate sin by flesh standards, then we could rank them. Yeah. But that's not really how life works. So what what are we supposed to understand? Yeah, I think we have to become very aware of our own predilection and certainly uh, the plan of uh, our ancient adversary, the enemy, um, to always minimize what we're doing. There's always going to be this voice that says, it's not that bad. It's really not hurting anybody else. It's certainly not as bad as other people. Uh, You don't need help as much as other people do. Uh, You can control it. Keep it, and it's that voice that always uh, is telling us to to keep a part of our life hidden. Yes, we'll engage with other Christian people, and yes, I mean, I did that for years. I would talk kind of in code about uh, lust, but never enough uh, that anybody that I could be incriminated. I certainly never, and I lament those years when I could have enjoyed a full relationship with other people, could have been making progress in that area of my life. Uh, those years of lost intimacy with Allie. And I now recognize that Allie paid a tremendous price for my minimizing. My kids did. I did. And John has faced that same recognition. So I'm a, my takeaway for other guys uh, is, uh, you know, don't listen to that voice. Don't listen to the minimizing voice, the voice of denial. Uh, and there is, uh, we have to we have to uh, lay our shame aside. There's joy to be found and freedom to be found, but only in the light. And uh, any excuse that will keep us in the shadows is working against us rather than for us. Now that that was your wrap up tone of voice, but I'm not going to let you go there just yet. Oh, okay, all right. I, I know you. I know your tones of voices. There, you said, don't listen to the minimizing voice. Yeah, yeah. At the other side of the spectrum, there is an equally 
dastardly voice. Oh, yeah. Says you're the worst so, of the worst. Right. So we can't listen to the the condemning voice. What is the what is the gospel voice that we're supposed to be listening to that yeah. lies in the narrow path between the two? Right, right. It's not the condemning voice. It's not the comforting voice. It's the voice that says, you are sicker than you think. You are far... You're far worse than you think you are, and far more loved than you can ever imagine. Uh, and we have to believe. We have to accept both. We have to accept both. Christ has done the work, and finding out how to climb on His back and let Him carry us holy—that's the gospel work of our lives. Yes, it is. Well, brothers, we've run long. Uh, but it has been well worth it. John, thank you so much for sharing your junk, brother. That's uh it's a great gift. You've just given a great gift to an awful lot of men and women. And you've brought hope to marriages, you've brought direction. It's, it's a, a wonderful and courageous thing you've just done. I salute you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. It's been a privilege to do this. I I guess I you know, I've heard the term functional alcoholics that you know that, that, that I guess I'm a, I'm a functional sinner, <laughs> and uh, I, I, it's very easy for me to feel very lonely, very uh, isolated in that, and I just trust that I'm not the only man that has had that struggle, and certainly want to help those that, that uh, are uh, man enough to admit it. I love that phrase, functional sinner. All right, well, this episode dedicated to all you functional sinners out there, come to the cross. Come to the cross. Until next week, this is uh, this is Nate Larkin, along with Aaron Porter, Newton Dominey, and our guest John Schur, saying goodbye from the Pirate Monk Podcast. Try to lift the